Well, hello there. I'm Nurse Mo, and welcome to the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. Today, we are diving into oncology and talking about external beam radiation. Before we do that, though, I do want to take a quick minute for our listener shout out. And this one goes out to someone who goes by the online name of Mom to Nine. And this person says, says, I just completed one year of nursing. You saved my life. When I felt frustrated and lost, I would listen to your podcast and your teaching brought peace to my soul. Thank you, Nurse Mo, for being just the gentle spirit I needed. Wow, this really gave me all the feels when I read it. And I just want to say to you, keep going. You're doing an amazing job. This is very tough. Nobody ever said it would be easy, but it is so fulfilling to work in a career that is your passion that also brings so much joy to yourself and to others. So thank you again for taking the time to share that feedback. And to anyone listening, if you ever feel frustrated, ever feel lost, just know, keep going. Okay, so today we're talking about external beam radiation therapy, which is used to shrink tumors and kill or slow the growth of cancer cells. So radiation damages the DNA, and it damages the DNA of malignant cells. It also damages healthy cells, but healthy cells, because they're healthy, are more able to repair that damage. Now, some of these cells are going to die very quickly due to apoptosis, while others will have to go through several cycles of mitosis before they die, which is why it may take days to weeks for some tumors to shrink. Radiation therapy is often used in conjunction with chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and or surgery in the treatment of cancer. Now, while it is used as an attempt to treat and stop cancer growth, it may also be used palliatively to reduce pain from bone metastasis. It might be used to relieve spinal cord compression, reduce lesions, control bleeding, and relieve superior vena cava obstruction. Note that there is a lifetime limit to how much radiation an area of the body can receive. So for this reason, a patient with a recurrent cancer may not be able to get radiation again in the same area that they've had it in the past. And that's because radiation has some pretty serious risks and side effects, which we'll talk about in this episode. So first, let's do a little bit of external radiation therapy basics. So prior to the patient's first radiation treatment, they're going to attend what's called a simulation procedure. And in this procedure, the treatment areas are defined and marked with very small tattoo dots. And a mold of the treatment area may be made, and immobilization devices might be used to ensure that the patient stays in the very same exact position throughout the whole procedure. And imaging studies such as x-ray, CT, MRI, and or PET scan may also be utilized to plan the radiation treatment. So as its name suggests, External beam radiation is administered from an outside source. A machine called a linear accelerator 
aims radiation at that target area in doses that are a thousand times greater than a standard x-ray. Treatment regimens, of course, can vary from patient to patient. Some will get one dose of radiation, while others will receive consecutive treatments for a number of weeks. And there are several types of radiation therapy. There's three-dimensional conformal radiation therapy. And if you want to dive into these, I will put a link to the blog post that goes with this episode because the differences are pretty subtle and I want to keep your attention. But it is interesting to note that, remember earlier I said some people will get one dose, some people may get a longer dose. Stereotactic body radiation therapy or stereotactic radiosurgery are types of therapy that involve large doses with a short course of treatment, typically one to two weeks. So somebody undergoing stereotactic body radiation therapy or stereotactic radiosurgery will have a shorter course of treatment. It's often used for brain tumors and delivers a very precise dose to that target tissue. Now, again, if you want to read about the other types, three-dimensional conformal radiation therapy, intensity modulated radiation therapy, image-guided radiation therapy, and charged particle radiation and spatially fractionated radiation therapy. Like if you really want to dive into that, it's in the blog article. I don't think it's going to be on any exams and it's probably mostly just going to be useful too if you're working in oncology. Okay, so complications of radiation therapy. Because this type of therapy utilizes a high dose of radiation, it's no surprise that studies have shown that individuals who undergo radiation therapy are at higher risk for developing leukemia, for developing breast cancer, thyroid cancer, and other cancers later in life. Additionally, the complications of radiation therapy are also quite serious. So I'm going to talk about a few of these here. One complication is radiation-induced fibrosis. So depending on the treatment site, fibrosis, which is a buildup of fibrin, can develop in the lungs, it can develop in the GI tract, the GU tract, the muscles, internal organs, including the heart, and the skin. While the risk is higher with those higher doses of radiation, the heart itself is especially susceptible to fibrosis. This condition is called radiation-induced myocardial fibrosis, and it can lead to heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, and sudden cardiac death. Radiation-induced pulmonary fibrosis can cause a persistent dry cough, shortness of breath, with symptoms that are sometimes not seen until 6 to 12 months after radiation therapy is completed. Radiation-induced fibrosis can also cause a wide range of symptoms based on, again, that location and may include restricted joint motion, lymphedema, pain, GI fistulas or strictures, brittle and weak bones, muscle wasting, neck pain, and dysphagia. So lots of complications from that. So treatment for fibrosis includes addressing the symptoms with things like early physical therapy, a special type of massage, I'm probably going to say it wrong, Louis-Paul Goutet massage, vaginal dilation, estrogen cream for pelvic radiation, lymphatic drainage, speech therapy, and pain medications. 
Hyperbaric oxygen therapy is currently being studied, and studies suggest it may be helpful in reducing peripheral nerve damage and lymphedema. And then pharmacology approaches involve the use of pentoxifeline, which is a medication that enhances microvascular blood flow in combination with tocopherol, which is vitamin E. Okay, so that's fibrosis. And then we have infertility. The ovaries and testicles, very, very sensitive to damage caused by radiation therapy, which can lead to infertility. Note that it's not just pelvic or lower spine radiation that can cause damage. Therapy to the head or neck can actually damage the hypothalamus or the pituitary, which can lead to gonadotropic deficiency and hyperprolactinemia, which is a condition that can cause infertility and other fertility-related problems. For many patients, preservation of sperm, egg, or embryo are often the best options if they wish to have children after radiation therapy. And then gastrointestinal toxicity can cause problems all throughout the GI tract, and they can occur after thoracic, abdominal, and pelvic radiation therapy. These include esophagitis, gastritis, and enteritis most commonly. So esophagitis can cause difficulty swallowing, which is dysphagia. It can cause chest pain. And in severe cases, it can lead to the formation of a tracheoesophageal fistula, which can lead to esophageal contents, such as gastric contents, getting into the lungs. This can cause acute lung injury, recurrent pneumonia, and acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. Patients with gastritis may experience the formation of ulcers, nausea and vomiting, dyspepsia, abdominal pain, and loss of appetite. Enteritis can lead to perforations and ulcerations, as well as diarrhea, abdominal cramps, nausea and vomiting, loss of appetite, and malaise. In addition to the cardiac fibrosis that was mentioned earlier, radiation therapy can also cause cardiac toxicity, and this can lead to conditions such as coronary artery disease, arrhythmias, pericarditis, valve dysfunction, cardiomyopathy, and heart failure. And these conditions can persist for years and decades. So now that you have an overview of external beam radiation therapy, let's go through how to care for a patient undergoing this type of therapy using the straight-A nursing latte method. So L is for look. How does the patient look? So patients will have a wide variety of symptoms. Some of those are going to be related to the type of cancer that is being treated, the area that is undergoing radiation, and the cumulative dose of radiation. General side effects of external radiation therapy include edema in the target area, fatigue, hair loss in the target area, poor PO intake, dehydration, and bone marrow suppression and low blood counts. The skin itself is going to suffer the effects of radiation called radiation dermatitis. You may hear it called radiation burns, and this is where the skin is red, it's tender, and it's irritated with blisters, dryness, flaking, peeling, and itching, so very uncomfortable for the skin. And then specific areas of the body can show specific signs and symptoms when targeted by radiation. So abdominal radiation therapy, that's going to cause abdominal symptoms like nausea, vomiting, cramps, diarrhea, things like that. 
If the patient has radiation of the brain, look for things like headaches, hair loss, hearing loss, memory issues, difficulty with speech or changes to speech, even seizures. They can have cerebral edema, they could have nausea and vomiting, they could have cataract development, and they could even have decreased level of consciousness. And then in general, head and neck radiation therapy, look for things like mucositis, sores in the mouth or the throat, dry mouth, dysphagia, that difficulty swallowing, alterations in taste, earaches, tooth decay, gingival edema, stiffness of the jaw, laryngitis, and oral candidiasis. So lots of different things there that make you think, you know, swallowing risk, decreased nutrition, things like that. And then thoracic and chest radiation therapy. Look for esophagitis. Watch out for your patient having airway edema. They may have a sore throat. Again, dysphagia, swallowing difficulty, a cough, shortness of breath, those cardiac complications that were mentioned earlier, the fibrosis, the toxicity, and pulmonary damage like pneumonitis, chest pain, blood-tinged sputum, and GI toxicity. What about breast radiation therapy? Your patient may have breast soreness, lymphedema is very common, cardiac complications because we are working in the chest area, that pulmonary damage. Brachial plexopathy could occur. This is damage to the nerves of the shoulder and the arms that leads to numbness, tingling, pain, and weakness. And then pelvic radiation therapy, including for prostate cancer, the patient may have things like blood in the urine, difficulty urinating, frequent urination, or even incontinence or leakage. They could have issues with fertility, fistulas, rectal bleeding, diarrhea, cramping, vaginal dryness, narrowing, shortening, and erectile dysfunction. In addition, patients who are undergoing radiation will have those radiation tattoos in place, and these are very, very small and permanent dots on the skin that enable the radiation technician to always aim the beam at the exact same location with every single treatment. Okay, let's move on to A. How do you assess a patient undergoing external beam radiation? So general assessments include you're going to get vital signs before and after therapy. You're going to assess pain level before and after therapy. You'll also perform targeted assessments based on what signs and symptoms you expect to see based on the location of radiation. For example, let's say your patient is undergoing radiation on the neck. I'm definitely assessing that patient for airway edema, dry mouth, swallowing difficulties, etc. Now, since radiation can cause leukopenia, assess the patient for signs of infection. Note that the patient may not be able to create a lot of white blood cells when they have an infection. So other signs could include fever. But again, not all patients can mount a fever either. But look for fever, look for malaise, decreased level of consciousness, and system-specific symptoms such as cloudy urine for a UTI or abnormal lung sounds or a cough with pneumonia. Or if they have a wound, does the wound look infected, etc.? You'll also assess the patient's fatigue, which can be significant, and their ability to perform their ADLs. 
weigh the patient and inquire about eating habits, their appetite, and anything that may cause decreased intake, such as nausea, mucositis, or dysphagia. Carefully assess the patient's skin in that target area as it is very likely to be a source of considerable discomfort or pain for the patient. You also want to perform a psychosocial assessment, making note of the patient's mood, anxiety level, coping mechanisms, response to treatment, response to diagnosis of cancer, their support system, and knowledge of the treatment plan and their diagnosis. These patients need a lot of support. Now, the next letter in the latte method is a T for tests. What tests will be ordered? So the patient's going to receive some kind of imaging study to plan their radiation therapy, like I mentioned in that simulation appointment. It's going to help pinpoint the location, and it's going to help monitor the effects of therapy. This might include x-ray, CT, MRI, and PET scan. It will often initially involve this happening during that simulation appointment and then again throughout or after therapy. We'll want to see how well it worked. And then lab tests will be performed specific to that patient's type of cancer when applicable, such as the PSA level for prostate cancer, and also include regular CBC tests, the complete blood count, to monitor for decreased blood counts, bone marrow suppression, anemia, low platelets, low white blood cells, all those things that can potentially happen. Now, the next letter in the latte method is another T for treatments, what treatments are provided for someone going through external beam radiation therapy. And these are going to be aimed at addressing symptoms and those adverse effects of the therapy. So a lot of your interventions are going to be aimed at treating the skin, which can be pretty severely affected. This will involve keeping the skin clean, the cleansing recommendations are to use mild soap with lukewarm water. You don't want anything really hot or anything really cold. So with that, no ice, no heating pads. You'll also be applying moisturizing cream and medicated creams as directed. And some common things you'll see are Topical corticosteroids, very commonly used. You may see topical 1% atorvastatin, which is a medication. Atorvastatin is typically used to decrease cholesterol levels, but you may see it used topically for radiation dermatitis. You may see silver sulfadiazine and other types of creams that are meant to provide moisture. If you are putting a dressing on this radiation burn or this area of radiation dermatitis, make sure you use paper tape and that you don't place the tape on the area of the burn. Now, other treatments used are going to address some of the common signs and symptoms. So PRN medications, very common to treat things like nausea. A great example is ondansetron to treat diarrhea, such as loperamide, or constipation, such as docusate sodium. Pain medications often include acetaminophen, NSAIDs, and opioids in some cases. And then for mucositis, which is pretty common, this can be treated with topical anesthetics, topical mouthwash type things. A commonly used medication is called magic mouthwash. So if you hear that referenced, it's a combination mouthwash that has lidocaine in it, malox in it, and diphenhydramine in it. 
Other treatments from mucositis include anti-inflammatory drugs such as prednisone and acetaminophen and even narcotics in some cases. It can be very painful. You want to assist patients who have mucositis with their oral care and use either a very soft bristle toothbrush or a um, more of a sponge toothette type thing for cleansing the mouth and the teeth. And make sure you're providing non-acidic soft food options such as plain pasta, mashed potatoes, yogurt, protein shakes, eggs, and rice. Things that are very easy to eat and non-acidic, nothing crunchy. You want to encourage small frequent meals that are high in protein to help prevent weight loss and encourage fluids to prevent dehydration. And patients with decreased PO intake may need enteral nutrition and IV fluids. And then the last letter in the latte method is E. How do you educate the patient or the family? So some key teachings, and there's a lot. So these are some of the highlights. Individuals receiving external beam radiation are not radioactive, so they don't need to follow radiation precautions in the hospital or at home, as would somebody who's having internal radiation or brachytherapy. You want to ensure that your patient understands how to take care of that radiation dermatitis. It's going to be a very big factor in their care. In addition to the interventions that I described earlier, teach your patient to wear soft and loose clothing. They want to avoid rubbing or scratching at that irritated area. If they need to remove hair, they should use an electric shaver instead of a razor. They should avoid cosmetics, scented skin products, anything irritating to the skin, as well as the ingredient lanolin in their moisturizing creams. They should avoid exposing the area to sunlight and use deodorant only on intact skin. And that cool humidification can help with dryness. You also want to teach patients about the importance of eating enough protein and calories to maintain their weight. Small, frequent meals that are high in calories, high in protein are very beneficial. Protein shakes are a great option, also easy to eat if they have mucositis. Teach the patient how to perform oral care and manage mucositis if receiving head and neck radiation. In addition to all the interventions I listed earlier, teach the patient to avoid very hot and very cold foods. They should avoid smoking. They should avoid chewing tobacco and alcohol, including things like mouthwash that have alcohol in them. They can use sugar-free candy or gum to help keep their mouth moist, and a great tip is to moisten food with gravy or sauces. Foods that are well-tolerated include applesauce, oatmeal, pudding, eggs, mashed potatoes, basically things that are kind of bland and soft. Teach patients strategies to manage fatigue. This is very important. This can include doing gentle exercise. Exercise can actually help with fatigue, but only if it's done at times of day when they actually feel like they have the energy. Walking is a great option. They should rest before periods of activity and be willing to ask for help from family and friends when needed. So there you have it, your quick overview of external beam radiation therapy. 
I hope to see you back here next week. We're going to be diving into pharmacology, talking about one of the most terrifying medications I've ever given at the bedside, and that is adenosine. So if you're following or subscribed to the show, it'll show up for you automatically. How cool is that? So if you're not yet, take a minute to do that. And if these episodes help you, I'd love to read your five-star review go ahead and submit that. It would mean the world to me. Thanks for sticking through me as I record these episodes with the remnants of a cold. I know I sound a little off. I didn't want to miss getting these out to you on time. So one more week of this and then I should be back to normal. See you next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. 